psychiatrist rapping about our lives and work. This podcast is not intended to be medical advice. Any stories we use have been altered to protect identities and sensitive information. This is intended for entertainment purposes only. You know it! Ow! Welcome to the Good Shrinks Podcast. This is Free. This is T. And we're two psychiatrists rapping. What are we rapping about today? You know, today I think we should talk about an interesting topic for us. Mm-hmm. Parents, children, and the emergency department setting. Man, oh man. <laughs> it can be one of the most productive and also one of the most difficult things for us as psychiatrists. Yes. yes. By the time somebody's coming to the emergency room, you know, they're in crisis. And one of the things that we have to do is try to figure out, first of all, why they came in. Because sometimes you sort of, or this is what I do, I will see somebody and if it's somebody that we've seen before, you can make snap judgments about why they might be back and miss important details about what's different this time. And I feel like with children, this is their first or second time maybe coming to the emergency room. So it's really important to make sure that we really understand what's going on with them and what's happening. But... The parents often come, again, just like we can have a snap decision about why people come, mm-hmm. parents can come with a snap decision about what's going to happen. Yes. They often come in with like a preconceived notion, right, of what they expect for treatment. And I think that's something that maybe we can talk about today is parents' expectations and what they think kind of treatment they will receive in an emergency department setting. Mm-hmm. As psychiatrists, like we know, inpatient is very selective. It's very reserved uh, for individuals that are like a true harm to themselves or others. Mm-hmm. And we have a lot of kids that come in with a lot of behavioral problems to the emergency department. And I mean, from our perspective, like these parents are demanding admission. And that can be tough, sort of reevaluating right. their views of, of what they expect to happen. And the other, one of the other things that happens is that these people come, you know, from all over the place and they've talked to who knows how many people before they come through our doors and they will often be told things that are not true. So people will come thinking because they're told, you know, you just take your child over to the emergency room. They'll take care of it. You can just drop them off. I've heard that so many times. Like we're a babysitter service or a hotel, you know, someplace, a timeout that they can come and just drop their kid off and leave. Um, We get into contentious discussions with parents who want to just leave their child in the emergency room and then call us when he's ready. Like it's like it's a hair appointment (laughs) or it's a, you know, dentist appointment or something. These are emergency room cases these are decisions you need to make with the guardian present and a lot of the frustration at least i have is that we can't get in touch with people like once they leave sometimes they will not come back yeah and you know we've experienced things where sometimes kids are boarded for weeks to months and from our perspective just because they don't have somebody to come pick or they don't have a safe disposition yeah The other thing with kids, I will say, is that there are so many moving parts. There's the crisis, what brought them in that day, but there's also everything that happened leading up to that. And that's part of our job in the emergency room is to try to decipher what happened, what contributed to make 
the child go into crisis and what steps can we take to try to reduce the stress or reduce the the things that are causing them to be in crisis when they go back home. Maybe something for like the listeners to think about is if, if a child is you know acting out at home, let's say they're really upset, let's say they're throwing things, punching doors, telling their parents, you know, really nasty things, which kids do, right? Like at some point we were all kids and we remember lashing out at our parents. But then not like this. Yeah, These I mean, kids today. Well, that's that's true. I would have been knocked into next week yeah. if I it just never would have even occurred to me to say some of the things that I hear these kids say to their parents. That's very true. Um, <laughs> but still, yeah. but still, and that that is true. Things definitely have escalated. When we evaluate them, sometimes these kids in the emergency department, the crisis has passed. Mm-hmm. You know, they're perfectly calm. Right. They're telling us they're fine. We're just part of their safety plan. We're part of the safety point. plan. Yeah. But then the parents have dealt with so much, they just have expectations like they need to go away for treatment. They need a break. They need a break. And it, that's, I think, the hard part for us as psychiatrists because you want you to help. Empathize. Empathize, yeah. yeah. And you want to help them. You're like, you know what? Maybe the kid does need a, a timeout. But what is kind of the appropriate resource for that, you know? I think that's the, that's really the bottom line is that we do not have enough resources to help the people that need help yeah. in our community. And we are often the, the bucket that, yeah. you know, people just drop everything into because there is nothing else. Mm-hmm. There isn't a place where parents can go and get a timeout. You know, we have certain children or, or child adolescent shelters, but they have strict rules about who they can accept and who they can't. So there's not even a quick place for them to go. So it is still, you know, they'll come to us and we'll see them and figure out, do they just need a timeout and we admit them to observation? Or is this somebody that you really have to stand up and say, there is nothing that we can really do to really adjust this situation. Mm -hmm. We're here, we're present, we are witnesses. Yeah. We can give you the resources that we have that, you know, we know are probably not fully adequate for what you need, but this is really all we have right now. Yeah. You know, and I, it's hard when it's kids because, you know, you really want to protect kids yeah. whenever you can, but we're not set up to do that kind of work. True. Through think- an emergency room. I think you bring up a good point as really it comes down to the resources, like even the shelter you brought up, you know, the criteria is like if the kid has any running away behavior, they will not take the child. And that's why they came. Yeah. And that's why they came. And a part of of oppositional behaviors is running away. So then like, what do we, what do you do at that point? And I think parents feel the frustration of that as providers, we feel the frustration of that. We provide a lot of validation and, you know, try and sort of work as much as we can in a one-hour emergency evaluation of looking at the family system, trying to understand the dynamics, understand if the, the child has a primary mood disorder or something else going on, and kind of working from there. It, it, it's a lot. It's a lot. And sometimes it's the most some of the most difficult cases you see in a day. It also depends on the shift, too, because I am somebody who works a lot of second and third shifts. So... I am working with fewer crew, basically. I don't have social workers really to help me. I think during the day, the daytime doctors have like that full service um, team of people that can help them with resources and things. But I'm just trying to like do it on the fly myself in the middle of the night. You're like a one-man show, literally. I'm Googling stuff just like 
patients can, you know, yeah. to try to find uh, resources. And, you know, we'll see people that aren't from our area, people coming from other states even. I don't know anything about their resources back home. And so then, again, we give them our resources, which are already limited. Yeah. And it doesn't even apply to them because they're from a whole other area. I mean, I want to give an example tied to that. And I want your perspective to, mm-hmm. to, to T is like, you know, I had a, not too long ago, uh, parents brought a patient across state lines, an mm-hmm. adolescent who overdosed in context of a stressor. That emergency department medically cleared them and let them leave. Mm-hmm. So then they went across the state line saying that this patient had a suicide attempt and needed to be hospitalized. So then it's also like, well, if the other emergency department cleared them, mm-hmm. you know, is this an acute crisis? And mm-hmm. again, you want to work with the parents. So it really does come down to what the child is saying. And in this situation, luckily, luck, I hate to say luckily, but the child still had some suicidal ideation and so I was able to sort of use that for hospitalization Mm -hmm. you know it becomes very sticky when resources are so limited Mm -hmm. especially if you have a lot of like last night I was the point person for any kind of questions that came up with the team and um, there was a person that had come into the emergency room been evaluated discharged probably two hours later showed up at another emergency room and now requesting telepsych. So sometimes you see this shopping for the right. They will continue to go to different emergency rooms. And then those emergency rooms may reach out to us and say, what should we do with this person? It's yeah. like you have to reevaluate them all over again, which especially if it's just going to give you the same result, it seems redundant. And it's also taking time away from somebody else that you could be dealing with in their crisis. Yeah. So... Using us responsibly, mm-hmm. I think there's not like there's a PSA that we can do to say, yeah. hey guys, <laughs> if you're in crisis, don't just keep going to emergency rooms. But at the same time, we tell people, if you go to a therapist and it's not a good fit, keep going to therapists until you find yeah. the right one. So on the one hand, we're saying that, but now people are just using emergency rooms that way too. And, and I think as a, you know, as a provider in these situations, things, there are kind of, I feel like, two groups. Uh, and T, you may agree with me or not, but you have the parents that literally the kids in every form of therapy known to man, and they are still acting out. And yeah. they're like, quote unquote, the, the rough kids, mm-hmm. you know? And they mm-hmm. are defiant. They really don't care what their parents have to say. And the parents are like, every resource given to us, we're, we're working with. Yeah. And then the other group is sort of the parents that have never once even sought therapy. <laughs> didn't even know what didn't therapy know was. Didn't know what therapy was <laughs> or any resource. And then they either, there's a crisis, they bring them to the emergency department, which is fine. We work with that. But then it then sometimes those parents tend to make the emergency department punitive. And then mm. they always go to the emergency department for an acute crisis right. and then never seek any additional mm. care. And so that's difficult for yeah. me personally yeah. is so how do you deal group. with it what do you do you know i do send like i do again you know when i'm with the parents i do my best to be as neutral as possible i have an internal you know you're not you're not counter transfer yeah. so like that that basically means my feelings towards the patient which mm-hmm. a, a mental health provider has as well all providers everybody humans humans in general you have a feeling towards somebody right and so I can tell my counter-transference was that parent is frustration mm-hmm. and maybe even a little bit of irritability, you know? So this is what we have to do on the fly, people. 
Yeah. We have to identify our own feelings. We have to manage those feelings. At the same time, listening to what the people are telling us that they're there for. Exactly. And then come up with solutions for them. Yeah. I mean, it's just a constant juggling. It's a whirlwind. Mm-hmm. How, and there's not an answer for this, right? But like, how do you think we can improve? RIT, <laughs> fix the world, what's okay? Up, what's What's your question? So how do you feel we can maybe increase resources or what kind of resource do you think would maybe help reduce kind of these emergency evaluations for bad behaviors in kids? I think that there's never going to be a replacement for what we do. Yeah. I think we are still the best option for people who don't know what to do Yeah. when they are really truly in a crisis and don't know what to do. Mm-hmm. I think that we have to somehow better understand what resources are out there because I bet there are a bunch of things that are going on or Mm -hmm. that there are people that like us are frustrated with you know kind of the state of mental health resources out there and are trying to do something about it we just haven't because we're sort of in our own bunker yeah you know working with these people day in and day out we're not out there checking out where all the resources are we have to depend on those people in our team that you know, the social workers and the clinicians that do know about those programs, that they update us about what's out there. I have talked about this over the years with different people. You know, have like open houses or something where we invite the community to come in and do some education about what we can do and what we don't do. Yeah. Um, Just so people are more aware of it. So like some kind of mental health open house or mental health forum where the community could come and talk about what their issues and needs are, and then we can try to, if it's a big enough you know, sampling and people come from different agencies and different communities, then we probably can put some more things together. I think we're just all working in our own silos, yeah. and we're not really aware of what's going on, and right. we're all pounding our fists on the table about how things aren't working but we're not really coming up with solutions together. together. So something like that, I feel like, could be beneficial. And first of all, we'll be able to educate people more about what we do and so that people come with less preconceived notions. And if it turns into some kind of like annual thing, then we're, all, then we're always just kind of talking and like getting information and intel. And then we can streamline all of our separate programs to meet the needs, needs. and still be true to what it is that we're trying to do. Yeah. So I, that's off the cuff. <laughs> yeah, like that, that. I think that's a, uh, a lot of awareness there. I think in medicine in general, we have such, we've compartmentalized every part of medicine, like even within mental health, right? You know, we have the suicide attempts, the, Psychotic the psychosis, people. a lot of that. And then you have kind of this other group of more chronic behaviors, things that need to be worked on and addressed. And I don't really honestly know a good answer, like more therapeutic resources, like therapeutic respite for parents that have really difficult patients or patients, kids, Yeah. (laughs) or, you know, some type of more youth crisis centers. I mean, there's like one in the city we work, work with. Or youth like mentoring. Yes. Yeah. Where there's coaches for these kids. Mm -hmm. Because even more than therapy, because... You know, a lot of kids don't have the words to really express how they're feeling, let alone the ability to express how they're feeling. And they think that it's cheesy to have to go and talk to somebody every week anyway. And half the time, they don't even think something's wrong. Yeah. So if they had a whole different approach with just a coach who's going to just try to make things better overall 
and they, especially if they're, you know, they're used to being in school and maybe being in sports, like they, that, the whole concept of a coach mm-hmm. might be easier for them to, to deal with than a therapist because yeah. therapist means something's wrong with me. Yeah. A coach is just somebody who's a buddy who's going to help you grow stronger. So I, I don't know if that, that's part of it is just finding these different ways to reach people and, and show them, you know, it's the same thing. Mm-hmm. Like therapy and coaching is kind of the same thing, but we use different words or we use different roles to help us get to the direction we want. Yeah. In society in general, just kind of the way I think about things is I remember, you know, when I was younger, I think there was more of an authoritarian feel from parenting. Mm-hmm. Now I think parents are much more open to kids' feelings, you know, how they react to things. And I think that's good, but I think it also takes away some of the the discipline that kids will respond and listen to. Kids are need. And need. That is the truth. They need that that structure. Boundaries, yeah, Mm -hmm. they do. And parents I think the whole shift from that authoritarian, like you said, Mm -hmm. to more uh, permissive or let's feeling, you know, let's figure out what the feelings are. You know, kids being able to do whatever they want to yeah. in school and then parents lost that. Parents lost, I mean, it was like a partnership yeah. between the parents and the school. I, I, well, I do want to jump oh, no. in. Yeah, I want to jump in on that because I, I think when it comes to discipline, you know, the schools used to be a little bit more aligned with the parents and now they're more almost aligned with the children. I think, you know, I can't tell you how many times I've heard from parents um, that the kids sort of weaponize it. I'm going to call it DSS. Like, kids are aware, you know, and kids have a lot of access to things. Uh, even, in, I would say, in the past five years, there's been a change. I mean, kids research different mental health hospitals, different kinds of medications, like what their symptoms may be. I mean, mental health is like really grown in awareness in our culture. The thing is, is sometimes these kids are emotionally and developmentally not at the level of really understanding what this means. I think in some sense, we still have to be the adults, right? We still have to have control of the room. And Mm -hmm. I feel like nowadays, that's really kind of, we're losing that. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's, it's... It's hard. It's a societal thing. I don't think there's an answer, you know, and a lot of people may disagree with me, but I kind of feel that way. So like from your perspective, from like media, social media, how do you feel like that has affected children? I mean, back in the dinosaur age, we, we played outside. There were bullies that hadn't changed. There were still issues, but you solved it. Like you dealt with it face to face. You didn't have what you have now, which is just this whole universal access to everybody at every time. And you can say whatever you want to about somebody and it becomes the truth. Yeah, It's so damaging. Mm -hmm. It's so potentially, I mean, it's amazing that we have that technology, but for these kids who are just trying to figure themselves out, and then you have not only the bullying going on face-to-face at school, but now they can get on social media and tear you down yeah. um, and tell everybody about it so that they can tear you down. It's just, it's like a, a constant under-the-spotlight kind of feeling. I think it adds to the anxiety that we see with these kids. It adds to the, the trauma, you know, that they go through. It's like it's compounded. Mm-hmm. Um, it is a very dangerous 
I, I want device, I think. I agree. You know, I think it's interesting. I do want to validate kids. Their emotions are their emotions. Mm-hmm. Like you're very egocentric at that age. Yes. Everything affects you times 500. Yes. And so you have to validate that is their feelings. Mm-hmm. You know, whether you agree with them or not, mm-hmm. that is what they're acutely feeling. And I think I'm in my late 30s. So when I was, you know, kind of in grade school, the, the social media was not a thing. I couldn't imagine being a kid in a classroom sitting there and other kids are like sitting on social media saying negative things about you and you're right next to them. Like right. I would, that would tear me down, you know? And mm-hmm. I think social media provides a lot of information and it has socially opened up a lot of things that mm-hmm. kids are so much more aware and accepting of. But it, it comes at a cost. Agreed. Uh, especially during just the... That's the, a good way to put it. Yeah, it comes at a cost of just the amount of information that can be sent and said about you in a good or bad way. Mm-hmm. It's just a... It's a place... It's in, in parents all the time. You know, number one stressor is when I take the phone away, right? Kids act out. Yes. And they... Lose their mind. They lose it. Because that's their connection to... Everything, you know, their friends, their games, whatever they're doing. If they can't be online at the same time as their friends, then it's like that fear of missing out. Yeah. You know, that I'm I'm outcast. I'm not going to get the information that I need to be in these friend groups. Why is that so important? I like, know. People lose their sense of identity because they're trying, they're chasing all of these whoever's opinion matters that day and you know, unre- about who un- they are unrealistic expectations everything online as we know is a filter it's uh, right. manipulated in some way right. and these kids don't really realize that they see it as the truth right? right and their whole job at their age is to figure out who they are mm-hmm. they don't know that's their job but yeah. that's what they're doing and so they push against boundaries to see what sticks and yeah. what who they are and so that is just a terrible playground for them to be in yeah to just you know try to figure out who they are you know as a teenager you're really trying to form your identity right it's so in such a hurry to get to be an adult Mm -hmm. it's like be a child yeah you're not gonna have these years again exactly and it's just like this um one of the patients that i saw who he was sexually abused from the ages of four to eight. And then he went back to stay with, he went to stay with a relative who was physically abusive to them, went to another relative, ended up in some group homes, ended up in a therapeutic foster home. And he is 13 now. Mm. And he turned to his guardian and said, you know what? I'm 13. That means most of my childhood is gone, and I didn't even really have a childhood. Now I'm never going to be able to look back. You know, my friends, well, the people that I go to school with, they have all these happy memories about what they did when they were growing up, and I don't have that. And I'm never going to have that. And just to have that realization at at 13, 13. so young, what do you do with that? Yeah. It almost forces you to grow up fast in a way. And, you know, I think a lot of times... A lot of trauma you experience at a young age has a profound impact I mean, on it, you. It pretty it much makes you who you are. are. I mean, every to thing, the good or to the bad, right? There, there are cases of resilience. Yes, you know, people who do go through these horrific things and still somehow find the will to be a good person and do the right things. 
but then there are so many that, that can't. Yeah, I mean, I think those early memories and formation of, of who you are and what you experience, like everything else you do is compared to that as an adult, right? You kind of reform your childhood relationships in some way. And so when that is so traumatic and difficult, I mean, you're looking at long-term therapy and, and really having good people on your side to help you get through it. And you never know what is going to make the difference. Like yeah. for some kid... Like, you almost think that there's a resiliency gene. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that gene can get activated, Mm -hmm. and sometimes it stays dormant, depending on what they're exposed to. Like, it could just be a teacher, a good teacher that just sees some potential in this person, doesn't know anything about what's going on at home, but sees a light in them and then pulls it out. It could be a grandparent Mm -hmm. who sows the seeds of faith and, you know, whatever it is that is important to that grandma, and she's going to... Help that child, right? Yeah. So you never know what it's going to be. It could be one of us talking to them in the emergency room, or a social worker, somebody that it could be somebody on the bus stop, Mm -hmm. you know, that just sees something, and so you never really know what this, what the seed is going to be, what the spark is going to unlock that door, (laughs) that that, that dormant gene of resiliency. But I agree with that. We should do a topic on resiliency. Yeah, resiliency is a big thing, and I think you know that's true. Everyone has kind of different strengths and weaknesses whether it's intelligence some people do have emotional resiliency mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and it, it is interesting like what factors into that and i think you're bringing up a lot of good things like it could be individuals in your life um it, there's a lot that ties yeah. into that yeah. and even thinking when you're mentioning that like veterans right i mean they'll experience an intense trauma let's say overseas you know 30 percent of them will develop ptsd mm-hmm. but then it's like well why didn't the others mm-hmm. right it, like what was the difference what was the difference and that is such a interesting question yeah i mean it's kind of a heavy topic but i think it's important just <laughs> speaking off the cuff about things that we experience and even ourselves working within the mental health system and kind of how we can improve things because at the end of the day we want to help people as much yeah. as we can and we can help people. Yeah. That's the thing. So don't come away from this thinking, oh, wow, yes. no help is. <laughs> we help a lot of people. people. Yeah. Despite these things that yeah. we're talking about, we are able to reach people, and we do see people get better. We're always in talks to try to make things better. Yeah, and that's kind of the point of what we're doing here, is just kind of give a little bit of our own internal perspective of, of working on the other side of things. Mm-hmm. And at the, at the end of the day, really, we're all just travelers, I will say. Kumbaya, <laughs> We're all just travelers. We're all on the same bus. Now, some of us have different stops. You're right. We're kind of on the same bus, and we're trying to help each other out. But I will tell you, strength is knowing that there is something wrong and asking for help. 100%. That is strength. I think that's a good way to end it. All right. Well, thanks for listening. See you next time. Or listen to you next time. Bye.